Learning a skill I think is very important, whether it be tailoring or so many different other trades. I think once you've learned a skill, it's with you for life. On today's British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Elliot Rowland, who runs Redwood & Faller, a company that's been creating handmade bespoke suits in London's Westminster since 1946. Redwood & Faller provide the finest levels of British craftsmanship to the aristocracy, politicians and celebrities and work under a royal warrant. Elliot talks to us about the culture and tradition behind bespoke tailoring, inheriting skills and knowledge from his father and master tailor Edward Rowland, and what place the handmade suit industry has in contemporary British society. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Elliot Rowland, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Uh, you're in a tailor shop called Redwood and Faller in Westminster. Um, we'd love to talk to you about the traditions, the craftsmanship behind that. But we're hoping you could give us some background on yourself and your business. Yeah. Me and my father run a tailor's in Pimlico called Redwood and Feller. Um, it's been established since 1946, uh, where Mr. Redwood and Mr. Feller first started the company. Um, they ran it up to 1976. Um, and at that point, my dad was learning the trade in Carnaby Street when if you like, tailoring was probably his most coolest years when you had mods and rockers. And if you'd walked down Carnaby Street and looked up above the flats, they're all tailoring shops. So it'd all be, you know, people working on coats, jackets and waistcoats, and that's where my dad learned. Um, and then someone said to him that there's two junior gentlemen planning on retiring and selling their tailors in Pimlico. Why don't you go and have a look? You know, you're, you're a bit of a character and think it'll be good for you. So he come down and yeah, so over a sort of two-year period from 1976, he took over the company. Um, he kept the name because everyone's got a well-known name in Pimlico. Um, and he was working there. And when I was 14, I was, do I go to university or do I join the, the business? Slightly had my arm twisted. And uh, I've been there for 21 years now. Um, and it's good fun. It's with a small little shop in Pimlico. We pride ourselves on doing everything by hand. Um, we've got a lot of repeat business, customers that we've made for for 30, 40 years. And yeah, we believe we offer you know, a nice service and that give customers that bespoke feel. So the idea of passing on the skills and knowledge from father to son obviously used to be more popular and is not so common these days, but it must have felt very good to keep the knowledge in the family and for you to learn from your dad the, the skills and the trade. Yeah, I think, you know, learning a skill I think is very important, whether it be tailoring or so many different other trades. I think once you've learned a skill, it's with you for life. Um, and my mum and dad said that. They said, Elliot, why don't you do it now? Because when I was younger, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And dad would say, look, give tailoring a go. Yeah, you're learning a craft, but not only that, you'll be learning people skills because it is such a personal thing. Now, when someone comes into your shop, it's you, know, you and them, and you're there for half an hour, an hour, going through personal details of what they want. And so that's not, so you're not only getting the craft of learning and crafting of making a jacket and trousers and waistcoat, but your you know, people skills for life. And you know, they do last you forever for, for interviews, example, for, for example. And yeah, I'm pleased I've done it. It's been fabulous. It's been a great journey so far and hopefully years to come. Like I said, my dad's had the shop for 46 years and hopefully I'll be able to have the shop for the same period. I couldn't read at the age of 11. That's when I did my 11 plus, so they put me down as a failure at age of 11, but I knew I was better than that. And the only thing I was good at school, as soon as I learned, I went to the top in the secondary school. 
but I was really good at art. And uh, so I went to Campbell College of Art. But in those days, my father was a street bookmaker. Highly illegal in those days still. There was no bookmaking shops then. And uh, after a year at the Campbell College of Art, I realised that I wasn't going to sell any stuff to my dad's friends. They'd nick it, because they're all villains. That's all he knew. We only knew villains. So I thought, I've got to do something else. So someone suggested try the London College of Fashion. So I went there, I loved it. And I, I liked it to the extent, at the age of 20, I went on my own and opened a little workshop in number 45 Carnaby Street in the 60s. I was first floor and I started making for all rock stars and loads of different people and uh, developed from that. And then I heard about this little business in 74 and apparently it was up for sale for seven years, but no one saw the potential. And I saw it because I used to box for Westminster and I knew about this street because it was a direct link from the city to Belgravia. I thought I would give this a go. And because I knew that every posh car in London would pass here sometime or other, and it's how it worked out. And that's how I got the trade started there, you know, with all sorts of famous people. Now I make for nine different dukes. So what's the kind of key differences between a, a bespoke suit and an off-the-peg suit when, you, when you're making them for uh, us kind of lay people? So we always say, our little slogan is, once you have bespoke, you won't go back to off the peg. Um, it's what goes into it. It's the story, the journey, the experience for the customer. So, for example, you're going to go and buy a suit off the peg. You're going to walk in, there's going to be loads of jackets, you'll try one on, it's made for a hundred different people, and you walk out. It's, it's never going to be perfect, or to you and your, your personality. Um, I think with bespoke tailoring, it really is an ancient craft and it's, it's a special experience. Um, and that's what we pride ourselves on giving. You, you'll come into our shop, um, you'll meet me and my father, you'll discuss what styles you want, what you want with the suit as well. Um, then you'll start looking through fabrics, whether you want a suit, an overcoat, a, a morning coat for the races. Um, and you also pick a lining. For example, some customers will go plain matching or we've got some unbelievably fancy linings you can choose. And then, then you come onto the important part what customers pay for bespoke is what their needs are. For example, any pockets they want on the jacket, um, inside the jacket. I mean, for an example, at the moment, everyone wants a cigar pocket in their, in their jacket, which is a nice little touch. Um, and you go through what pockets are on the outside, trouser details, how they want their trousers to sit. And there's dozens of questions, because that's the art of bespoke. Um, and then obviously come on to the measurements, which are obviously very important. And also the figuration is important because you could, anyone can take someone's measurements, but the figuration is important because that customer will stand in front of you and you'll see, oh, actually, they've got a slightly drop right shoulder, they've got, their arms are slightly forward, they're bow-legged, and all these things are hugely important. We like to give a rough fitting, which is just cloth and canvas. Um, it's almost like our little insurance fitting to make sure we've got the pattern pretty much bang on. And then once we've done the first fitting, it's easy for us to rip down, press completely flat again, and then alter the pattern, because the client will have his own pattern. Um, as I mentioned before, they'll be in our records forever, and if he changes shape, for instance, puts on weight or loses weight, we'll change the pattern as needed in time. So this fitting, it's easy for us to put it on. We can rip it down on the client. So for example, we can completely take the sleeves off. Uh, we can take the side panels down if the balance is slightly wrong. And it's a fitting that's really for us, more so than the client, because we can see what we want. And then when we come on to the next fitting, 
it's much more structured because you have the hand padded on the chest, the shape, the garment is much more stronger on the client. And then they can get a really good feel of what we've created. Um, so like this is the back part of the jacket. As you see, I'm just putting the sense back. This jacket's actually got side vents. Um, and what we've done, we cut it nice and wasted so it cuts in and flares out. Because on our jackets, as my father's previously mentioned, we like a nice wasted garment, really sharp, a nice skirt. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm putting the back on. Um, once I've done this, I'll be putting the sleeves together. Um, and this is, as you see, so I've mark stitched the front. So this here is the front part, which will sit just like that. You'll see it's going to be nice and wasted. This will be the lapel, so it's a very, very rough idea. This is the dart, which gives a nice bit of shape in the waist as well. And then we have the side body here. Give you sort of an, so you can make, sort of have a bit of imagination of how it all comes together. And yes, with this fitting, really it's just for us that we can mould it together. And they're, they're easy, to put, easy to put together, the rough base as well, because it's just cloth and canvas. You can have it done in a few hours, and obviously me and my father, we normally do them together, and we sometimes can do them quicker if needed. And the important with bespoke is, yeah, it's probably slightly more than you want to play off the peg suit, but in the long run, it will save you a huge amount of money. It will, it will, you know, and that's why, for example, the establishment, they'll always have things made. Yeah, it's more up front, but long term, it will save you money. How long are you talking for the process of that? For a new customer, we always say 10 to 12 weeks. Um, that's purely because they won't have a new, we've got to cut their pattern. We'll give them one or two fittings. But then once we've got an existing customer, for example, we have customers that will refuse suits a year, maybe once every two years, but they'll come in, we've got their pattern, we'll give them one fitting and finish. Um, obviously also with bespoke is it's the long-term care you're having with it so in a, in a bespoke jacket you'll have about four inches of inlay so if it was to shrink in the wardrobe or the customer loses weight we can take it in or let it out so again it, it doesn't matter they've got that suit there for all the time for years and years and years it can be worn this is a traditional way of doing it but it's the best way we expect if you make a suit a big good bespoke suit for anyone of all the hand padding that goes inside and it's, it's called soft tailoring it will last you in excess of 30 years if you use it correctly as long as you don't have them dry clean too much because dry cleaning is chemicals and chemicals destroy natural fibre in the old-fashioned way what the old butlers used to do they used to um, Spray it with water and brush it really hard to clean them up. Of course, have your trousers clean, but the jackets, you don't need them clean that often. And if you look after clothes like that, it, long term, it will cost you less, a lot less, than keep buying a suit every other year, not the peg. So, at Redwood and Fella, you've created bespoke suits for five Prime Ministers. Um, you must have met some kind of very interesting people uh, over the years and you have to work obviously quite close with them um, to be fitting the suit etc so um, I so thought you, you must have some quite interesting stories to tell. Yeah I think with Taven as I said it's very personal and with all our customers we do build great relationships um, and being such a small shop in Pimlico we're fortunate that we've got a wide range of clientele from sort of musicians, politicians, you know scaffolders to taxi drivers we're you know very much a famous shop essentially on London um, 
And yeah, like I said, my father's made for five prime ministers. Yeah, you'll be very surprised who comes in our small shop, actually. I had a phone call from John Miller. Mr. Oyl, I need you to come over here. So I run over to see him. He was the master of the horse. And at the time, he was actually entertaining Lady Lyons. His butler answered the door. You've got to come for me, quick. So we ran across the yard. And we walked into the room, and there's the Queen sitting there behind a settee, behind a coffee table, and the Duke of Edinburgh standing behind a settee. Mr. Rowland, how are you? Your Majesty, I said, I'm somewhat surprised to see you. She started laughing. Come and sit here. So she patted me. So I sat beside her, would you like a coffee? I said, I'd love a coffee. She poured me out a coffee. I thought, blimey. Anyway, I was there for about 20 odd minutes, talking away and about all sorts of things. Been all about me. And she said, uh, it's time to go. She said, I'll see you again. Your Majesty, do me a favour. I said, she said, well, by that time, I'm confident. Please make an appointment because I'd hate to disappoint you. I got back up here to the shop. I phoned my wife. She said, where you been? I said, you ain't going to believe me. She said, where have you been? I said, I've just had coffee with a Majesty Queen and she put you lying so and so. And it went on from there. And then a few days after that, she awarded me a royal warrant. Another story I had here was... Uh, Sir Dennis Thatcher I made for years and years and one day, two weeks after she was called the Iron Lady, they come in the shop and uh, I closed the shop off, the bodyguards were out, so there's only two of them and they started having an argument over what he should wear, what colour. So, um, look, any time, and he says, is Margaret, you might be called the Iron Lady outside this marriage, but inside you're not, shut up, leave me alone with Eddie. I started laughing. But a sparkle came in her eye and the three of us stood there crying with laughter. It was the funniest thing we'd done. They were so devoted to each other. So Dennis Thatcher was a gentleman. He never walked away from anyone. He, he used to go around London with his walking stick and he had time for everyone. He was a gentleman. The press used to try and make him out as a bit of a buffoon. But he was a very clever, bright man. You know, he was chairman of Burma Royal. He owned his own engineering company, sold for millions. So, great in his own right, but he was a great man for her. Back in the 60s, if you ask someone to describe a British person, they would probably say that the, the smart suit would be part of that. Do you feel that um, the traditional tailoring is still part of our, our culture and heritage now? 100%. So, obviously, as you know, styles change from the 60s to the 70s, even to now. But the one thing I would say, a prime example is you and me sitting here, is we've got a button two jacket on with a notch lapel, that style is going to be okay to wear for another 20, 40 years. Obviously, during the 60s, you know, you had really wide lapels, button one. 70s, it became quite popular to have a free button jacket with a small lapel. But people in the city want to be safe. They don't want to stand out too much. So a dark grey suit, a dark blue suit, you could have got made in the 70s, the 80s, to now, will still be in fashion. You can wear it at any function you want, knowing that, it's, going, it's a multi-government you can wear for any function as well. You know, we don't pretend we're designers. We are a English traditional bespoke tailors that make well-made garments that will last you years and years and years. Um, I had one um, famous rock star. He was at, appeared at Hampton Court. And he said, I want you to come. I said, I can't come. He said, I insist, you've got to come. So we're going to have drinks in the governor's office first house and I want you to come. So I went along, had drinks with all his band and it was time to go to see the product, his, his gig. 
And now he said, you come on the bus with us, because it's about two miles from the, um, where we're performing. So he put me on it, and he put me out, got one of his chefs, right, make sure he sits by the stairs in the front. So I did, yeah. And he walks out. Do you like a certain They all clapped him and cheered, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I brought my tailor here. Do you want to meet him? Eddie, come on, stand up. In fact, no, don't stand up. Come up on the stage. And he made me sit beside him on the piano <laughs> and his big number. And I did feel an idiot. But it was quite an experience. In the 20th century, you, you probably had England and Italy as the two capitals yeah. of the world when it came to tailoring. Um, how do you feel that the, the, the two styles are kind of related to the cultures of those countries? So obviously, if you put an Italian suit and a, a, a British suit next to each other, there's, there's a big difference. Obviously, they're both handmade, but Italians, are, it's very much more relaxed. The shoulders are much softer, whereas a British garment is nice and structured. You really feel clipped in. Neither's better or worse than the other. It really is, with style, it's in the, the person that we, that's wearing it. Um, we have a lot of customers, so I really want an Italian-style jacket. We can do it, but we'd always say, look, we have a classic British tailors, so why that's you want to come to us so we can show what you know what we do. If you want an Italian style then like you said maybe try to go to Italy or find someone that does that. Um, if they said Italian style what would they be referring to? So it's more sort of loose, it's more of a relaxed fit if you like. You can see a lot more of the stitching, um, it's not nowhere near as structured. So when I say structured, on the chest piece here you have three layers. You'll have horsehair, the met, your canvas and it gives the jacket a lovely shape. Um, whereas this is slightly more softer, more relaxed, it's a floating canvas inside. And yeah, all the stitching is much more looser, if you like, to give it, I guess maybe because obviously the heat as well, so it doesn't need to be as structured or strong as a British garment. Um, and yeah, it really is, there's, you know, Instagram now, for example, you know, you can literally put tailoring on Instagram and look at dozens and dozens of different style suits from anywhere. I mean, you've got good tailors in Turkey now, you've got the Thailand tailors, there's um, like you said, Italian tailors, British tailors, everyone's got their own style, which is how it should be. Because, you know, everyone's got their different tastes and preferences. And, uh, yeah, we just hope we do as well and get everyone back onto British tailoring. <laughs> 200 years ago, people mainly wore uh, bespoke garments just because of the, the nature of society. But with technological progress, it became less and less. It seemed by the 80s maybe bespoke tailoring was, was going to die out, but there's been quite a resurgence in recent times, particularly with young people. Why do you think that is? Is it related to society? I think, for me personally, there's nothing better wearing a bespoke suit, whether in, in the office or not. I'm, I know I'm slightly biased. But I think it, it, it gives people more of an urgent feel that they're important, doing something important. You know, being smart, putting a tie on. There's no better feeling, you know, for example, people wear a suit for their wedding, they want it to be made because it makes them feel good. Um, and I think, yeah, tailoring has always been there one way or another. Um, you know, a bespoke suit, you're looking at 10 to 12 weeks to have it made. And I think in today's society, prime example is Amazon. You know, you click it, it's going to be there tomorrow. Um, but I think once people understand craft and what goes into it, I think a lot of people come onto it because people like to buy something that tells a story. You know, if you, you know, isn't it nice to buy something that you know where they've sourced the materials from, who's made it, who's cut it, who's, you know, you don't get that very often. I think now people like that. We have a lot of people coming in the shop asking, oh, can you send me some pictures when it's being cut? Can you send me pictures of the buttonholes being put on? And yeah, I think people like knowing where things come from. But one of the most benefits you get from this, not many trades you can 
get a piece of cloth, cut it, make it up, make fittings, and actually see it walk out in a shop on a client. It's unique these days. You know, a lot of people have part of process of manufacturing. But for this, you can do it from start finishing, and it's wonderful. Well, the, where do you see the future of, of tailoring going in Britain? Do you think it's going to remain part of our culture? Or? I hope so. Yeah. Um, the biggest problem probably for tailors is, you know, probably like all trades and shopkeepers in London is what happens with rents, etc., like that. That's, you're always fighting that. You know, I mean, Savile Row was only allowed to be tailors, and now they're letting other people in because, you know, a tailor can't afford £300,000 a year rents and stuff like that. You know, that's extortionate. Um, tailoring is a big part of British culture. You know, people, you go walk down Savile Row or Rochester Row, where we are, you know, people take pictures of the shop, they're looking, they're interested. Oh, they always want to have a bespoke garment made. So it is important to keep that tradition within London. Whether Savile Row it stays like that or tailors will disperse and become more around London or individual sort of places for the areas maybe that might happen but I speak to a lot of tailors and we're all busy there's I think we can get more young people in more apprentices in. it'll be good for the trade for the future I was the president of the tailors benevolence society and I had to make a speech in front of over 300 people at merchant tailors livery hall and I stood in front of all these master tailors and I said look I want to make a speech about training in our trade. Oh, boring. So, oh, do you all think it's boring? I oh, don't. I said, it's about a survival of our trade. And uh, I said, I'm going to do a quick survey now. I said, hands up, how many of you work beside a master as an apprentice and learnt a trade? 60 or 70 hands went up. I said, now, you guys know who masters now. How many of you have got a young kid working beside you? Three hands went up. I said, I make my point. We don't do something now, we're dead. And I had someone from the Skillfast Council come up to me and ask me. And um, from that, we developed a course at Newham College. And now there's 35 apprentices coming in our trade. I've always backed youngsters. It's very important. I do work experience here for youngsters. It's very important. Must never forget about young people. Too many little companies like this forget about it. Years ago, Lowell shops down always had an apprentice. But again, going back to what I was saying earlier about people want to learn a craft because where it's become more fashionable to learn a craft as well, we get people contact us all the time saying, are you taking an apprentice on? Uh, oh, can, you, can I come and look at what you do? So there is an interest in it. So I think, I think long term, it'll always be there. Um, where it be on the scale, I don't know. It just depends what happens. And if, but there is a huge interest in it. Hello, Roland. Thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me.